who's going to end up at the top of the list? Is it going to be TransPerfect? Is it going to be RWS? Large enough to fund major new business units, but small enough to be entrepreneurial and nimble. 10 areas where translators are and will be experts in the loop, despite the advancement of technology. It lets you translate so fast that it will go as you type. And welcome everyone to SlaterPod 92 today with two co-hosts. Hi. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> so we got uh, Esther, of course, joining from London and Anna Wyndham, our senior research analyst, joining us from Madrid. And we'll be talking about a piece that Anna uh, wrote and we published last Friday that got a ton of traction and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get back into this in a second. But today, very special episode also because Kenneth Hayfield, reader of machine translation at the University of Edinburgh, he's joining us as a guest later on. You know, he's leading research in Edinburgh, one of the most prestigious MT universities in the world in NMT, language modeling, algorithms. He uh, runs a team of research staff, uh, PhD students, used to work at Bloomberg, Google, uh, you know, still very closely involved in the industry. Uh, super fascinating conversation. We recorded it before this segment. So, uh, you know, do stay tuned. There's a product unveil, uh, product launch, uh, product demo, uh, that first time we do a product demo here. And so, so fascinating. But first, um, We'll talk a bit about Argos uh, buying Venga Global and about RWS's results. And then, of course, Anna, you'll, uh, you'll tell us more about that, uh, that fantastic piece you wrote. So, Esther, what's going on with Argos and, and why are they now among the top 25 LSPs in the world? Yeah, well, a little bit of a no-brainer. Uh, they bought a fairly large company, um, <laughs> roughly doubling in size. Uh, so, yeah, Venga... Venga Global was uh, the company that acquired was acquired by Argos Multilingual. They announced it last week, and the deal closed at the beginning of October. Um, so, I mean, I think the CEO of Venga Global, pretty well known in the industry, uh, Cara Lindor, he was on our podcast as well uh, a while ago, six months or so ago, I think now. Um, he uh, is joining. Uh, Argos following the acquisition as well as the uh, rest of the Venga Global exec team also. And we spoke to Argos Multilingual CEO Veronique um, and she was telling us a little bit about the background of the deal, a bit about um, some some of how, well, how both companies have been doing so far in 2021 also. Uh, so she said that Argos, uh, you know, expecting growth of more than 55% in 2021. So it's pretty, pretty strong growth there. And that Venga is also experiencing positive momentum. Um, in terms of the combined revenue, um, so I think Argos was about 25 million in 2020. Uh, we don't have the full revenues, uh, were fully disclosed for, for Venga Global, but probably roughly in the region of 20 to 25 million. Um, projected combined revenues for next year, 2022, is upwards of 60 million US dollars, she said. So, um, nice. yeah, pretty much a force force to be reckoned with now, both in the US and in Europe. Um, so the combined company derives about 70% of its revenues from the US. Um, at least I know Venga Global also has like a, a pretty uh, solid revenue base here in, in the UK. Um, about 10, 10 plus million, I think. Um, so it's kind of around the size of um, Separatair, Kern, Corby, uh, that kind of uh, size of company now. Um, and Veronique, I mean, she was telling us a little bit about the benefits of being of that size. Uh, obviously, there are some challenges as well when you go from being two companies, 20, 25 million to one company of 50 plus million. Um, but she said, you know, we're large enough to fund major new business units, but small enough to be entrepreneurial and nimble in our efforts to get these up and running quickly. Um, yeah. And I think just briefly uh, talking about the sectors and services uh, in terms of how they're fit, uh, fit. So you've got Argos that's specializing more in life sciences, manufacturing. Venga has a focus on high tech um, sector. On the services side, what's interesting is that obviously both are offering translation localization, but they both also have uh, a number of adjacent services and services adjacent to translation. Um, so Argos does a fair amount of copywriting, SEO, um, and some NLP services where they've seen uh, good growth as well. Whereas Venga um, is, has been, I think, involved in data for AI, so data collection, data annotation for about five years. Um, and also does some multimedia services on top of that. 
Great. Congrats to uh, Veronique and uh, Kimon Funtakidis. Kimon being the very first podcast guest we've ever had. Yes, so, that's uh, right. Thanks again for that, Kimon, and congratulations on doubling your company size. So uh, moving to the top of the food chain, RWS, uh, near the top of the food chain. That's the whole uh, the whole <laughs> excitement around this. Who's going to end up at the top but, of the list? Is it going to be TransPerfect? Is it going to be RWS? Well, it looks I like think it's we're gonna... the only ones that care, but that's fine. <laughs> we, care, we, we care deeply. We care, we care deeply. deeply about this, okay? It's uh, what keeps me up at night. No, okay. Um, so RWS posting results, kind of a heads up, these trading updates on the UK Stock Exchange. Looks like revenue is going to come in around uh, like 970 odd million US dollars, like around 700 million pounds. Um, so in line, on the top line, in line with uh, analyst uh, expectations. And I think on the the, the bottom line, the profit uh, somewhat exceeded analyst expectations. Let me just pull this up here. They are expecting around $150 million, so roughly 110 um, 10 million pounds. That's that's a lot of money on uh, mm. you know earning. So uh, $150 million a year in earnings. Um, that's RWS combined uh, now with uh, SDL, of course. Uh, they say that uh, the new the new CEO uh, Ian L. Mokadam said that robust revenue performance combined with you know a stronger than its anticipated margin following the acquisition of SDL. So they're obviously doing a lot of uh, restructuring and things like that. So uh, becoming more more profitable, higher margins. And so yeah, it looks like it's a horse race that TPT translation uh, tra sorry TransPerfect is set to mild just maybe just about exceed in terms of the revenue figure and you know they're they're not disclosing um, bottom line profit figures. So anyway, good good to have these uh, two race each other. Although I think maybe TransPerfect uh, sees that. What maybe maybe they care a bit more, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, RWS has shareholders and is public and you know needs to. Um, uh, needs to watch the bottom line more closely. So yeah. moving away from corporate to an area that got a ton of traction on LinkedIn, on Twitter, lots of traffic on the website. Um, Anna, yeah. the title of the piece is <laughs> 10 areas where transitors are and will remain essential experts in the loop. Tell us about where this, is, this piece came from. And then, of course, mm -hmm. let's go through the 10 areas. Sure. Um so first, I mean, it was really interesting and fun to research um, this topic, but we wanted to put a spotlight on 10 areas where uh, translators are and will be experts in the loop, um, despite the advancement of technology. So areas where their skills and their expertise and professional experience really come into play. Um, area number one, uh, translators as decision makers in subtitling. So we looked at this balancing act uh, that subtitlers need to play between sticking to subtitle length restrictions and making shows and movies accessible um, and readable uh, to viewers. And on the other hand, they need to retain the richness of the original language so the viewer gets an authentic experience. And um, we saw this illustrated, of course, um, by Squid Game, which you guys have discussed in the, in the last couple of podcasts with the attention given to the quality of the English and the Spanish uh, subtitles. And what, we, what I found really interesting is that subtitlers and translators really welcomed this attention. They loved the attention from the mainstream media and from viewers because suddenly everyone was grappling with what they need to grapple with every day, which is how do they bridge those cultural gaps and what do you keep and what do you lose uh, when you make decisions in subtitling? So um, this is an area where subtitlers are drawing on expertise in many different areas uh, to make these judgments. Number two, uh, uh, translators as creators. So this was focusing in on uh, the area of transcreation, specifically in advertising and marketing. Um, so as we know, this is an area where MT has a fairly limited role to play. Um, translators are taking a creative and inventive approach to taking the underlying idea from a source text and trying to find a way to render it in the target that has the same impact in the target market. And that can involve diverging quite a lot from the original. Um, and like subtitling, it requires translators to draw an, an intersection of skills and expertise. So copywriting skills, cultural knowledge, mastery of multiple languages, of course, and understanding uh, the target market and brand. And of course, we're seeing an explosion in marketing content. So there's more and more need uh, for translators that are able to bring these skills. Number three, uh, translators as world changes. So we're looking here at the critical role that linguists play in international diplomacy and politics. 
facilitating communication and decision-making. And translators' decisions and involvement in this area can really have a lot of impact on how things play out on the world stage. And they're facilitating and enabling a lot of those activities. Um, so, for example, we, uh, we looked at the insights from a, a translator who works for the United Nations. And, of course, a couple of week back, weeks back, um, you guys had on the podcast um, a representative from Red Tea who spoke about the role of interpreters in Afghanistan, um, who were working with humanitarian organizations, armed forces and journalists. And she was talking about really how dynamic and varied and demanding that role is, uh, how the needs and role can change day to day. And how so much uh, effort is needed to stay up to date with the jargon and the lingo that's being used in a certain context and within a country um, over time. Uh, number four, uh, translators as consultants four. and testers. <laughs> so there's this theory that's uh, flying around a lot, which is that as MT picks up these boring, repetitive, high volume tasks, um, translators are going to be free and to take on creative and more fulfilling tasks and tasks that require really higher level of expertise, so kind of more specific um, specific type of, of skill or knowledge or experience. And we really do see evidence of this. So if we look at the role that translators are playing in language service providers and also on the localization uh, functions within the bio side, we see translators taking different roles, um, serving as language and cultural consultants, testing and benchmarking localized products, performing copy tuning um, exercises and we didn't mention this in the article, but something else that's coming up is this need for translators uh, to be the experts in mapping out semantic networks for enterprises. So um, defining the terms and concepts that are mm. important in an enterprise and how they relate to each other. And this um, then underpins lots of AI applications, so chatbots and other types of um, AI um, options for using AI to optimize processes in those, in those enterprises. So that's another area where um, this language expertise is really needed um, in conjunction with the NLP um, tools as well. Uh, number five is translators in law. Uh, so we zoomed in on the legal field and the use of the human in the loop workflow here. Um, and there was an interesting case that you spotlighted last, I think it was last week on the pod, um, this case of the um, Google Translate being judged or yeah. assessed by a court in the US. It's not being um, sufficient to elicit consent for a vehicle search in that context. So mm. this gap between what MT can produce and what's needed in different sectors, it, both in terms of how accurate a translation is and, and the degree to which it's been verified, this is really where, of course, um, translators are really um, needed. And this point applies across all sectors. We chose to focus on legal, but it applies everywhere. And on LinkedIn, there was a very interesting comment um, from someone who was um, pointing out that what's really important is to assess the risks of an error arising from the use of MT and understanding the impact it could have on the client's reputation, on revenue, or on, on safety, patient safety or consumer safety, um, and then to involve a professional translator to, to mitigate. Um, that risk. Number six. Number six. So here we wanted to, uh, so the article is looking at where translators, the role translators are playing between what technology can do and what's actually needed by, by clients, by sectors, by viewers. <laughs> um, but we wanted to really look at the role, the critical role that translators play in the development of MT technology in the first place. Um, so translators at the start of the loop, obviously translators are the source of the parallel text that's used to create machine translation. And in fact, uh, the goal of machine translation is to replicate or create artificial intelligence that replicates that translator's intelligence. Um, and we know that there's going to be continuous need, even with synthetic text, there'll be continuous need for these um, parallel texts created by human translators. Um, to refine and refresh um, machine translation engines. And that's because human knowledge keeps changing, language keeps changing, what businesses do and do with language is always going to be changing. Uh, number seven, translators as terminologists. So of course, they, uh, translators are playing a really key role in identifying and coining terminology or making decisions to leave terms translated. And that's in the context of uh, specific enterprises and also obviously more broadly in the context of 
of different fields, life sciences and engineering, anywhere where there's a lot of innovation going on. Um, this is really important. Uh, number eight, translators transforming literature. Uh, so this is looking at the role of translators in literary translation. It's kind of the furthest, furthest uh, area away from where machine translation is having impact. Um, and of course, kind of like transcreation, this is an area that involves diverging from the text and, and assessing really what the essence of a novel or a poem in this case is and, and finding a way to render that in the target that has the same effect, but not necessarily in a literal way. Uh, and there were some indications that translated literature is becoming more valued and literary translators seem to be, um, be, be becoming more recognized as well. So the International Booker Prize, for example, now splits, um, I think it's a 50,000 uh, pound prize equally between the original author and the translator. Oh, nice. That's great recognition because, yeah, I mean, obviously it's absolutely essential, the translator in, in literature, absolutely essential. I mean, Yeah, you're and an the, author, I've so. seen a, a conversation uh, also about whether the translator's name should be included on the, on the front cover of, of novels as well. So this is something that is getting attention. Um, and then towards the end of the article, we try and close the loop by looking at how translators close the loop at number nine. So this is the importance of the translator's insight into the quality of empty output. So their role, of course, is to evaluate empty output, refine it, reduce the reference translations that are used uh, to evaluate um, empty quality. And we're just trying to make the point here that this insight can't come from anyone else. Translators are the only ones who have this 360-degree view on what, that, what the translation quality is. They're the only ones who have a full view. Everyone else has a, developers have a partial view, users have a view, depending on their knowledge of the source and target, but translators are the ones who bring the combination of this expertise, the experience, um, and the understanding of, of both languages. And lastly, number 10, uh, translators in research. Um, so we're looking here at the role uh, of translators in the advancement of machine translation. And in the past, researchers and developers have kind of been on one side and translators on the other with a bit of a divide. Um, but what we're seeing now is that they're working more closely than ever before. And we see that, for example, with the introduction of a dedicated translator track at the annual summit for the, Associ the European Association for MT in 2018. Um, and translators are, of course, critical to the improvement of machine translation. Um, last month, when we spoke to Andy Wei, when we were researching DeepL, um, he's the director, deputy director of ADAPT, um, and he's been involved in machine translation for the last 25 years, so right from the beginning. Um, and what he said was, it's only by listening to the human experts, the translators who actually use the system, that developers can improve it. If people don't tell you how good the system is and what sort of mistakes it makes, how can we ever go back and build a better system? So I think that really sums up uh, the critical role of translators uh, in that space. Fantastic. So. That's a great quote to end. I mean, we, we got 10 here on our list, but of course, if anybody wants to add, please, you know, feel free to comment, to tweet, add LinkedIn or, you know, uh, on any other channel. So thanks so much, Anna. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Esther. So thanks we'll head over me. to, um, to thanks, of course, uh, head over to Kenneth and talk about MT, MT Research uh, a bit more. So stay See tuned. And welcome back to SlaterPod, everybody. Today, we're really happy to have Kenneth Heafield on the podcast. So Kenneth is an associate professor at the University of Edinburgh, one of the world's, of course, leading universities in MT research. And uh, Kenneth, you're leading the you know, machine translation, language modeling, algorithm uh, team, run a team of researchers and some staff and PhD uh, students. You also worked at Google, Bloomberg, and some others uh, before. So welcome, Kenneth. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your show. And use it to learn about industry. That's awesome. Then uh, we're, we're doing our job. So uh, does this podcast find you in Edinburgh today? I am in Edinburgh today. Absolutely. Great. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, so Kenneth, so this uh, conversation came about a bit differently than some of our other podcasts. Uh, we got a bit into a Twitter discussion over coverage of a carbon emissions paper, just for content and we'll, uh, for context. And we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, later, I, I, I guess, and we you know, want to understand a bit how uh, we uh, as industry should cover 
uh, some of the the research that's coming out, some of the preprint research. But um, yeah, I'm I'm I issued a bit of a challenge on Twitter, and you you accepted. So thank thanks so much for doing that. But first, <clears throat> tell us a bit more about um, what got you into this space, your background, and, and what drew you into the machine translation and kind of broader NLP uh, research space. So I started an NLP by outsourcing myself to India to work in Bangalore at Infosys oh, wow. in 2006 as an intern. And the project was applying topic modeling to source code. So they would get some large, messy ball of source code and want to rearrange it semi-automatically into something that's more sensible, but then people could get an understanding of the whole picture of the code. And then I was really the first time I was doing proper natural language processing that snowballed more into working at Google, uh, where I learned really how to run C++ well, but wasn't doing any machine translation. I knew of the team. I knew of some people on there but I wasn't properly on the team. And then really at uh, Carnegie Mellon, I started doing proper machine translation, building on the background of knowing C++ and engineering. And machine translation has a reputation for being a more engineering heavy side of academic research. And well, obviously with a lot of industry involvement as well. So it was more of a natural fit to the skills I came in with some natural language processing experience, but also knowing how to code more than the average PhD student. Got it. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, sort of intro or background uh, to to doing what you do now. I mean, um, if you, you were working firstly at, well, at Google, I think also Bloomberg, you spent some time there. Um, and then what, what was that motivation or what kind of drew you back into um, academia from, from the corporate or big tech side of things? I've always sort of bounced between the two a little bit. Even now I have some of my hands in industry, as we can talk about later. A lot of it has to do with freedom. And I mean, at Google, to be clear, I was a software engineer pre-PhD working on a Google Books team actually, and recognizing the language of titles of books and that sort of thing. The popular Eastern European author, JK Rowling, ah, with an A at the end. So what academia provides is more, I can write the proposal subject to some of what the funding is available and pick and choose which things to work on. Uh, and that's also possible at a more arm's length uh, relationship with a lot of industry people. I don't want to be carrying a pager. I don't want to uh, suddenly have the product requirement change or there's a reorganization that happens and I find myself working on a new team. There's a, some freedom that academia provides in choosing what to work on. Got it. So when you when you advise students today, I mean, there's this uh, when we were at EMNLP, that big conference um, in in Brussels, I think in 2018, it it, it was partial research, but also partial kind of a, a hiring a hiring fair, right? Uh, so big tech is and 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 fast emerging tech as well uh, is really uh, hiring aggressively students there. So so how do you how do you do that? How do you um, keep some talent within within your 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 team while while also of course kind of you know don't want to stand in the way if people want to want to join some of these big fast growing tech companies so the two phd students i've graduated have both gone to amazon and but they graduated uh first mm -hmm. There's uh, two more that didn't graduate and more or less did their masters and then went off to industry and left part early in the PhD. Uh, industry has a big draw. It depends on where you are in industry. So sometimes there's the production machine translation team and that has a different culture from say the Google brain or the Facebook AI research where the objective is more doing papers or Microsoft research. 
And uh, sometimes the game is just to get to the publication level that one can go to the industry lab. And that is the student's objective is to be in the research lab instead of the production team where they're uh, building another language pair using the same formula that's been developed by the researchers. I've also had a, a master's student that quit Google, came and did a master's with us in natural language processing, then went back to Google in a better NLP team that he liked. I think it's much harder to get a postdoc in natural language processing and MT especially, because those people are drawn to the big tech companies and there isn't this PhD that still has value in which team you get to work on in industry. There are obviously exceptions to this. Uh, Jacob Devlin and Chris Quirk, for instance, do not have PhDs, but are at the top of their fields. Uh, though I'd say the more normal path is complete the PhD and then go to the industry research lab if that is the goal. And it is really those big tech companies. You don't see a lot of competition from, I don't know, more, the, the bigger like language service providers, uh, some of the other maybe startups. Is it, is it really big tech that's like drawing 90% or? Big tech has the salaries. Hmm. And... I guess it's always natural that the largest organizations are the most well-known. So any particular startup is not necessarily going to be all that well-known. But there are definitely people working for uh, startups or wanting to do startups. Um, I hired a postdoc out of uh, an LSP, actually. And now she's going to work for Apple. So... Uh, if the salary is competitive, then yes. There's also the question of the extent to which a smaller company can afford to have a research department that's really leading and publishing an EMNLP if that's what people want to do versus uh, delivering on the product is what they have to focus on and the, sh the shorter-term goals. That said, mm -hmm. there's also companies that participate in research grants, especially European Union grants. And uh, there, there's a much more free-flowing movement of staff between a research group and a company that might be uh, working in the same consortium. We had our partner on a grant that didn't get accepted, uh, left the company that was involved and now works for the university that was involved in a different grant that did get accepted. Hmm. I think, yeah, we've seen a little bit of that sort of, co well, at least from what I've observed, these kind of co collabs or between whether it's big tech or an, an academia or maybe another sort of third party research institution as well. Um, and, and so the one thing I was interested in, you mentioned a few of the factors there, kind of, uh, you know, not having to carry a pager. That's maybe a plus about working uh, in academia and some, some of the things around product changes. Um, I mean, how, to what extent do you think that research setting whether it's big tech or academia, um, how is that shaping, you know, the work that you're doing? Um, what, what factors are contributing to you know, how the work gets done? What, what's similar and different about the, the two environments? GPUs. Big tech has a lot of GPUs. If you go work for Google Brain or Facebook or Amazon or Microsoft, you will have access to more GPUs then I can afford to give my staff, mm. uh, at least on a per person basis. I think part of that is actually more of a history thing than anything else, because physics groups have been using high performance computing centers for years now, and they have computing power that is comparable to what you see in large tech companies for their machine learning teams. Just culturally, natural language processing has not needed compute at that level. And I think the skills are somewhat missing in the academic side, whereas industry has brought in the engineers to build the cluster, keep the researchers happy, uh, specifically for their NLP product teams. And also the HPC centers, when I apply for time, it says something like, 
is the number of simulations appropriate uh, for the given timeline, uh, implicitly expecting that they will be physicists and chemists submitting, though in practice, mm. I have very high success rates in grabbing HPC time, and they're happy to have us. Right. Let's swing to the research that, that you publish. I mean, you've published a wide range of, of papers. Just tell us a bit more about kind of the core themes in your research and what are some of the um, kind of you personally, what do you hope to achieve through that? Like, what's the, the vision? I want to do things that are useful. And that's where there's also itches that come from problems I had. So I have a whole shtick about efficient translation and earlier efficient language modeling that were partly born out of it takes two weeks to train the system and that makes us not very productive. The thing is, it took two weeks to train a translation system, a neural translation system, 10 years ago when the very early neural MT papers from Mikhail Fercata and such came out. It's just that the hardware got better and we started doing more with them. And now our systems are more complicated. So uh, one thing I try to do is be at the top of uh, efficiency. And with that comes scale as well and scale to uh, a large volume of data if I can. And then uh, other shticks are uh, actually on the opposite side of that. There's a bit of low resource translation going mm. on there. So in uh, low resource is arguably the least solved in terms of quality and machine translation. And there are open research questions to be had about how do we deal with the smaller amounts of data compared to what you would have for German or French or something? Just a quick, sorry. Uh, uh, no, sorry, I interrupted you there. I have had a follow-up, but I think you weren't quite done. And uh, the last thread we've been pursuing recently is large parallel corpora. So we have the Paracrawl project, paracrawl.eu, that uh, produces by mining the web and then extracting it and putting it online, free parallel corpora that's often the largest parallel corpus available for over 30 languages. Got it. For, for low research, just to pick up on that, uh, like what are the, I don't know, top three, five languages that are low resource, but are very important, like in maybe an academic context, but also then later in an industry context? Indonesian has a very high translation volume on Google Translate, but the amount of parallel data is quite small. Indian languages, Hindi, you've got huge populations of people, but not much in the way of corpora available for them. Uh, and some of the African languages, you have millions of speakers of, I'm mispronouncing it because I don't have a click, but uh, Koza. And Zulu, for instance, have millions of speakers, but machine translation is quite poor for these languages. It does exist, but it's poor because there's not much in the way of parallel corpora. Sorry, just one more follow-up. Uh, what about thin synthetic text? Is that something that's also kind of going into low resource MT now? Because we've been talking about it for some other applications, generating synthetic text. That's one of the main methods, uh, be it back translation being the most obvious form of synthetic text or, or uh, trying to use a dictionary or terminology database and substituting words in there. People are using that to get more mileage out of their parallel corpora and thereby improve the quality. Another thing is using related languages, which is not quite synthetic text, but it has a similar flavor to it. Maybe changing the topic a little bit, uh, but still kind of remaining, remaining on the same theme. I mean, I'm curious to know how, you know, how success is maybe defined in academia and, and what does a successful academic researcher look like, for example? Um, I know you've got, you know, your, your goals, objectives, visions, but 
I mean, is it important to look at certain metrics? Um, are they valued among the community? Things like number of papers published, the citations. You know, I think there's various things you can look at as an outsider, but w- what is it that, that's valued within the community when it comes to kind of achieving some level of success? I think more important than the number of papers is having a few significant and influential papers uh, to give examples, transformers. So that's not an academic paper, very influential and people value that. And you could have Ashish Vashwani put out a few more papers, but they're going to notice the transformer above that probably, unless he's got something else cooking. And there's a certainly volume of papers does matter if, if you don't publish something for a year uh, in academia, you're in trouble. Um, obviously in trouble is a variable concept. If you've got tenure, it may mean that you're simply not promoted. Impact does matter and it's mattering more in academia because it's often tied to funding. So if I want to apply for an EU grant, there's an entire section of five pages that goes into what are my plans for impact. And if I don't have a company involved in the consortium for this EU grant proposal, it's probably not going to get accepted. There's a similar thing for UK funding. It's, it's a bit lighter and and it takes account for whether you're doing basic research or applied research. But you have to write an impact section, nonetheless, explaining how this is going to improve the industry or ultimately help the taxpayers. And fortunately, in machine translation, we have quite good pathways to impact these days. Our our paracrawl data is helping the EU translate swear words better in the online dispute resolution platform. Hmm. Very good. <laughs> that's that's quite a practical use, <laughs> indeed. Uh, also, maybe uh, can we talk a bit about these conferences? Because the way we kind of are usually um, realizing that a conference is coming up, especially that that large one, the EMNLP one, is that the research we track, uh, those papers just uh, start to uh, the number of research papers published starts to uh, skyrocket. Like we go from like two or three a day to sometimes there's like 25, 30 that, you know, we pick up and there's probably more. So help us understand conferences like EMNLP because we were there Esther and I in 2018 and we felt a little lost. Like we were wandering around the posters, you know, we nobody talked, wanted to talk like, to us. Yeah. <laughs> nobody had a business card and I was fr- like trying to get business cards. Nobody cared business cards. What, what are these conferences? Like, how are they important? And, and, you know, like, yeah, just, just help us understand those. It's, it's, uh, interesting for us as a conference organizer and, but, uh, and also, you know, trying to observe the industry or the, the academia from outside. Uh, I don't have business cards either, but my wedding ring does have NFC <laughs> with my left side on it. So, NFC, nice. <laughs> F3, yeah. So, uh, but moving on, there's, uh, ACL, EMNLP, NACL, Sometimes it's Kai and, uh, there, there's regional versions of these are the, the main conferences in natural language processing. It is very easy to get lost there in the sense that the conferences have gotten much larger these days and have been exponentially growing in the number of attendees. And now it's even stranger because you go into a gather town that's online instead of actually physically bumping into people and it happens to be whomever, uh, did not have other work responsibilities that seem to continue existing while you're attending an online conference these days. Mm. So in terms of normally when a conference happens like EMNLP, I'm usually not all that lost because there's almost always a machine translation session going on and we feel a bit lost when there isn't one. But that said, there's usually a related field like language modeling that has talks and 
they've also started adopting industry sessions that focus on papers that are more evaluated on how useful they were in an industry context and less evaluated on is this new work that hasn't been done before. So implementing an existing paper and deploying in a product and the story of how that was done can go into the industry track as well. There's also more industry-focused conferences. So AMTA actually coordinates with the American Translators Association and tries to have the conferences in the same place right after each other and has a much bigger industry focus to it. I think what you're looking for at EMNLP, though, I mean, they've, they have these uh, company-sponsored parties these days, and part of the yeah. game is knowing all the people at the different companies so you can come and crash their party. Or I think there was one at my hotel, actually, but I didn't we get We missed invite. the party. I missed the party. <laughs> Well, yeah. you, you weren't staying over for it, I don't think. You had back Good the point. same day or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I just wasn't invited. You should have crashed yeah. it, Esther. That's how it works. I know. I, sh- I should have. I should have. Next time. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, one question I'm wondering as well is um, thinking about the, the questions and the topics uh, around um, MT and NLP that oh, um, academics are looking into. I mean, you mentioned low resource languages. I think that's that's a big one. Um, but are there, are there certain topics that are being overlooked or that are just generally kind of undervalued or unobserved by the industry that we should maybe be more aware of? I think speech translation is integrated end-to-end is growing. Mm. It has problems with working for everything right now, but I suspect it's going to replace those cascaded pipelines that are currently deployed in industry. And we've seen some of this adoption. Uh, Facebook's working on it. There's obviously the Zoom acquisition of kites that you've covered before. And then there's uh, longer field things like people are working on textual entailment and summarization. And those tests are undergoing some revolutions as a result of realizing that they can take a large language model and then adjust it to work for their task. So machine translation outside of the low resource languages has a lot of training data compared to other tasks. And that's part of why it's so applicable immediately in industry, whereas there isn't much training data for does this sentence imply the content of this other sentence? It's ultimately manually annotated. And what's happening there is the growth of large language modeling is moving into those tasks and making them more doable because it can generalize over the sentences and abstract a little bit. And once it's upset, once it has abstracted, then you can start using the abstracted form to do tasks that have less training data. You mentioned speech to speech. So are we talking, literally taking an audio data set in one language and then directly converting it in an audio data set in another language? or So we're completely skipping all the intermediate steps. Like... If yes, if if yes, like how different is this from a research and kind of deployment perspective? So yes, uh, we are talking about things growing end to end. And there are some systems out there that are starting to do this. I think it's going to get bigger. And the, the trick is really in how to use the training data that is out there. So dubbed movies are not so great as training data because there's all this background music and honestly it's not how people sound it's very practiced recorded movie speech rather than a bunch of ums and ers inserted into it that we see in reality so the trick there is making a system that can exploit all this parallel text that exists all this 
transcribed speech, which is not as large, but much larger than transcribed and translated uh, speech and turn it into a multitask system that can exploit all of these sources of data at once while still performing an end-to-end. And one of the reasons you might want end-to-end is a, a lot of content in what we say is intonation, emotion, and even the sound of someone's voice is lost in a cascaded system. In terms of the data, wouldn't that, I mean, the reference it, isn't that huge? Doesn't that like exponentially add to just the compute problem when you have these big data sets? No. I mean, text versus audio. The size of the data definitely impacts how long it takes to trade. And then inference and efficient inference is a task we're working on. For machine translation, we can get a translation down to 17 milliseconds for one sentence on a CPU core. Speech recognition is typically more processor intensive than translation is. Though a lot of it is the latency driven by not knowing what the person is going to say rather than the processing. If you Mm. look at the ratio of interpretation lag time, it's mainly driven by waiting for the verb in German, that sort of problem, rather Mm. than the probably cloud-based processing of actually doing the speech translation. Got it. So we picked up uh, on some can of that I ask research. A quick, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, go, sorry. Go. let me just, I just have one yeah. quick question about this, um, about those end-to-end systems. Do you also have the same issue of kind of compound errors that you find in the cascade systems? So if you've got ASR and then MT and that, you know, if there's a problem with the ASR, it's going to replicate into or carry through to the MT, et cetera. Does that exist also in the end-to-end? Sort of the sales pitch for the integrated systems is, some of those errors can be rectified. The, there will always be problems in misunderstanding the word that someone said, and you can't just wave hmm. a magic end-to-end wand and get rid of that. Uh, but it does mean that there's a wider pipeline. So the language model that is effectively part of the generation process on the output language is helping you disambiguate what was said in the source language, which you don't really get when you're doing a cascaded system. Hmm. I see. When we, yeah, so we did come across some of that, I think Facebook research and we covered it, right? We came across one of those papers and we covered it. uh, And I think we might've gotten in from archive uh, spelled A-R-X-I-V. And, uh, you know, we do uh, liberally uh, uh, take a cover research taken from archive, which is preprint, i.e. it hasn't been uh, hasn't been peer reviewed. And we we did get some criticism from uh, from you and others uh, about the way we covered it. So I I was really wondering how. So, so, okay, for us, uh, we want to, we want, it's, it's kind of a live feed of what's going on. It's quite cutting edge. We, we go there, we see what the research community uh, wants, but we obviously can't cover all of them because there's so much research coming out. So we selectively pick and we pick for, you know, certain um, perceived interest, I guess, something, you know, if it's too geeky and it has a two, two, uh, two sentence cover, uh, title, we probably want to stay away from it. If it's from big tech, we look closer. And if it has a, great title. We want to look even closer. So long story short, how do we best cover this kind of research, not being able to peer review ourselves, right? How, how would you suggest that we, we, we go about that as kind of trying to bring this closer to industry people? I think one thing you've alluded to is big tech has much better PR departments that are actually helping advertise uh, papers compared to, say, academia, where, yes, we have a PR department for the informatics school in Edinburgh, but it's one or two people as opposed to a team that's promoting things. And therefore, we see that big tech does a much better branding exercise, and that has 
boil down to your implied trust in putting them through. Archive is really a, it's a bazaar and it has everything in there. There's some good stuff. There's some bad stuff. There's a few kinds of papers on there, I'd say. One of them is the corporate press release disguised as an academic paper. So examples of that would be the Google's neural machine translation, where they claimed human parity, but actually they selected a few short sentences and then made their claim with respect to a few short, simple sentences. And it's been rejected from multiple academic conference and uh, publication venues. And I know that because I was reviewing one of them. Uh, and uh, Microsoft's paper where they also claimed human parity that was more of a press release than anything else and defined human parity to mean we ran a significance test and didn't find any significance. But if you've taken a statistics course, you know that Failure to find significance does not actually mean anything. It could just mean that there was enough random noise in their annotations that they couldn't conclude anything from it. It doesn't mean that it's human parity. So, so uh, both of these have actually resulted in actual published peer-reviewed papers debunking some of their claims. Another thing to look for is, I mean, there are smells that come out of papers sometimes. Uh, using an old WMT is a good sign that their experimental practices are not so great because, especially if they want to claim state of the art. So Google famously, and I forget what year, but well after 2014 put out that paper, and then they claimed state-of-the-art on WMT-14. And I'm like, but the conference on machine translation, which used to be the workshop and therefore still keeps the WMT acronym. The W, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a little weird. Uh, industry trade secret there. Uh, or a shibboleth, if you prefer. Um, they renew the test set every year, partly to prevent overfitting by the community in the sense that if everyone runs on WMT 14 all the time, all we're going to get is systems that are good at WMT 14 and nothing else. So that means each year, everyone submits their best systems against the newest WMT and anyone claiming to be state of the art on an old one is probably lying to you in the sense that they've, by way of using an old test set, have excluded all of the latest state-of-the-art systems from their comparison. Um, another thing is cheating at blue scores. It happens in a lot of papers. So blue is looking for matches of one, two, three, and four words at a time. And the question is, what is a word? Blue has a internal tokenizer it uses to split off comma from a word, for instance. But some people run their own tokenizer. And if you run your own tokenizer and it splits more aggressively and breaks the hyphen in the middle, then all of a sudden that, that hyphenated word you had, which might have counted as one towards striculate blue, now counts as three words that matched. So... If a paper doesn't tell you we ran Sakura Blue on detokenized references, then they're probably cheating on their blue scores. And you can't really compare blue scores mm. across papers as a result. Do you think some of, the, some of this tip. is done kind of intentionally hoping no one finds out? Or why would you, is it just kind of sloppiness or just like ignorance or? It's a combination of sloppiness and wanting to compare. So WMT 14 English to German turned into a sort of industry and academia meme about let's all compare on this <laughs> test set and do our uh, report blue scores. And the nice thing about that is 
if you ignore all the problems where you can't actually compare across papers because people use different tokenizers and no one in the industry can agree what the tokenizer is, then you can make a table that says, haha, my blue score is higher than the following papers without having to replicate all of their work. And of course, replicating papers is also a, a problem that everyone in academia and industry has. And some studies have shown you can't replicate a lot of papers. Uh, I think, was it 25% of groups couldn't replicate their own papers? That's not good. So it was meant partly to save on replication costs and partly it's easier if you can just download the example that the toolkit has, do your thing that modifies it, and then uh, run the score that was provided by the toolkit. Uh, the problem is the score that prov was provided by the toolkit was probably created to replicate the transformers paper and get exactly the same blue score, which means they had to put all of the same cheats in that the transformers paper had. And now we're all stuck with the poor evaluation practices of one paper. Hmm. Now, when we cover this, so I guess we just have to be more cautious and say they said that, and we don't really kind of put a value judgment on top and maybe be a little more conservative with the headline, right? Because I guess what triggers some of the, the researchers when we put like a mildly, I don't know, hate to say the word clickbait, but like a mildly intriguing headline on top that claims something that the paper then doesn't fulfill. So we should probably just be a little more conservative. I guess what triggers the researcher is I've been doing all this work on putting papers out on efficient machine translation. And now this bad paper that is clearly bad by having the amount of training data off by a factor of 10,000 is getting press. That's partly a failure on our part that maybe we don't deal with Let the press as much as we should. Hi. Yes. Uh, and you, there's also an incentive created to make it saturated claims in a paper. So I don't like to talk about the climate impact of an efficiency paper because Javon's paradox is this thing that says, if you make it more efficient to use coal, people will find more ways to use coal. And then in the UK, the coal supply will actually go down as a result of efficiency and not go up. And in this case, uh, if I make machine translation go faster, hopefully more people will use it actually. And ultimately, the environmental cost of machine translation may well go up as a result of having made it more efficient and less costly to use. So I'm very suspicious of papers that jump from speed to climate, especially this paper that had no citation or methodology for converting GPU hours or power consumption into grams and yet somehow had a graph that involved grams. Got it. Well, so I think uh, wrapping things up somewhat, um, I believe there's a, a product that, uh, product announcement and something that uh, we might be able to demo on the pod. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Um, and then I think we can hopefully do a screen share and uh, yeah, take it from there. Yes, let's do a, This is the first demo we have and we're screen sharing. So for anybody on audio, now is the time to go on YouTube and hit the subscribe button and watch this. So uh, Kenneth, walk us through this. All right. So I've been working on this Horizon 20 pro 2020 project. I'm the coordinator and the idea is we want machine translation to run efficiently client side. We also have quality estimation and some other things, but the idea is preserve your privacy. And we know privacy is very important in the corporate context as well, that users don't want to send their data to Google Translate or Microsoft Translator or what have you, uh, even if they will sign NDAs. 
and we thought of bringing it directly to the desktop's CPU. So on this desktop I'm using right now, that's uh, under my desk here, it has a CPU. It doesn't have any fancy GPU. It's just, uh, in fact, I'm using Intel graphics that are integrated into the CPU, no NVIDIA, no AMD. Uh, I have this demo running. It's available at translatelocally.com. You can download it yourself, uh, Linux, Mac, and Windows. And it lets you translate so fast that it will go as you type. So I can type Pyforian. This is running on my desktop CPU and you can see how the German below is generating as I type and updating itself. And this isn't just like translate the one sentence at a time, you can go and make edits and fix things. And then the German below will actually uh, change as well. And in fact, it was fast enough that for the demo, we just retranslate everything you've typed in and there's no caching or anything. Uh, it, is... it was fascinating for me to watch. Sorry to just, I mean, it was basically jumping in German. It was jumping around because it's, it's interactive and it's, it's live, right? So it, it was jumping around between the polite C then the more like mun, which is kind of one can do, like the 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 impersonal, and then the do, which is the the you, the 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 kind of conversational view. It, it was interesting. It was just jumping around, fascinating. And this is running on your on your CPU, local CPU. Yeah, it's a Skylake. Wow. It's not even the latest processor. So we've done it on my five year old uh, laptop sitting over there somewhere. And actually in the project, we're integrating this with Firefox. Mm -hmm. So I can also show you a German to English example. I've got some text here from Wikipedia and all of that text was just translated in the flash you saw while I was waiting. Boom. And you can see this English output here. And this is again, for anybody listening, this is translatelocally.com. So mm. I'm it open here now. We got um Yeah, one, I two, three. navigated to the page as well. We got four seven, seven language, language uh, pairs. combinations now. Yeah, some are bidirectional. Yes, well. yes. There's the subtle bidirectional arrow. Um you can tell my web design yeah. isn't the best, <laughs> but I know how to record an animated GIF. You did? <laughs> so I can download yeah. this for back and see play around with it myself. Yep. And and so this is again it's interactive it's uh it's 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 kind of live as we go and and you when when was when did this become available uh, I think before the podcast you mentioned it's quite recent yeah it's the past few months actually uh let's see when we go in into the commit history when we created this we've been working on the core technology for a couple of years now, but putting a UI and having it go as you type and all that sort of stuff came out about March this year. We started actually having something that was usable. But what do you, what do you plan doing with this? I mean, is it, how open source is it? If anybody wants to put a, I don't know, a, another UI on top of it or build on top of it, how, how would that work? So behind this, we've got uh, a wrapper around Marion and there's the whole API back to translating. Uh, if you want to go in C++, we're working on a command line program where you just tell it, here is some text on standard in, and here is the language pair that I want to do the translation for. And then output it. There's nothing in principle hard about it. It's just getting a pretty interface around stuff. And we also have a REST API that speaks of our JSON. With Mozilla, we're directly integrating this into the browser. So you have an extension experience that when it detects the, something is not in the language you speak, according to the UI settings, at least, 
then it will offer to translate the page for you and work it into the HTML. Wow. Impressive. Uh, really impressive, uh, especially, uh, yeah, when I saw the, uh, the, 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 the live aspect of it, that was, uh, that was something I've only seen in commercial products so far. It's impressive and it runs on, on the CPU. I'll, I'll be downloading it uh, right after this, this part. And then I also hope maybe at some point it'll go to Brave uh, if, you, if you continue to work with, with the browsers. We've been talking to Brave as well. And uh, Brendan Eich actually appeared in the Slack channel once and we discussed some no of the kidding. limitations of WebAssembly uh, that it runs slower when you do it on top of WebAssembly. So we're talking to Brave about integration directly into the browser as well. He, he, he's incredible. He's so active and uh, yeah, I mean, very, very impressive. I, I, I've been using Brave now for a year and I, I you know, don't want to go back. Wow, that's uh, thanks so much for that announcement. Live here on the pod, and uh, you know everybody go to translatelocally.com and uh, hope uh, uh, this uh, this will help a bit spread the word. And kind of this was this was fascinating to talk to you today. Uh, really appreciating, really appreciate you joining joining the podcast. And so uh, I, I think I should be more active on Twitter if it triggers uh, such interesting bots going well, forward. Well, you have so. ten times as many followers as I do, and yet somehow my tweet <laughs> got more engagement. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I should get a few more. I'm mostly retweeting. It's 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 quite. I think if you want to be a good tweeter, you need to spend some time and and and, and energy on it. So, anyway, uh, Kenneth, thanks so much. Uh, greetings from Zurich and London to Edinburgh, and I uh, hope to meet you in uh, in IRL at some point in the future at one of these conferences. Maybe EMNLP. <laughs> exactly, we'll be back. And we'll be <laughs> Round two. joining the party. So, <laughs> all right, thanks, thanks so much. 